Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament Lectionary Podcast. I'm Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And I'm Rosie Candlethal, Hebrew Bible PhD candidate at Emory University. This week, we are bringing you preaching tips on the biblical text for Sunday, March 19th, the fourth Sunday in Lent. Rachel's up to lead us through this week's first reading, 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. So, Rachel, where are you going with this one? Well, surprisingly, not down any rabbit holes on this one for a change. (laughs) Uh, This one is a pretty straightforward take on a story that, I don't know why you're laughing at me, this is not necessary, (laughs) a pretty straightforward take on a story that may or may not be familiar to folks in the pews, because it's the story of David before he was King David, his origin story, so to speak. Sort of. Hmm. What do you mean by sort of? (laughs) Well, so here's the thing. If you read the text carefully, David has no less than three possible origin stories. That is, three stories that all seem to be introducing David as a previously unknown character. There's this story in 1 Samuel 16, where God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse to go find the new king amongst the shepherding sons of Jesse. Side note, Oftentimes, sermons will present shepherds in the ancient Near East as people who were on the sidelines of society or outcasts of society. It's important to know before you do that, that shepherd was a common trope for king in the ancient Near East, not just in Israel, but in other surrounding countries as well. The kings were often talked about or would talk about themselves as shepherds. So it's not necessarily that God was sending Samuel to someone who was outside the realm of society, but more likely that it's it's highlighting this kind of kingly trope. Okay, anyway, back to the story. In the second half of chapter 16, starting at verse 14, we've got a King Saul who's being tormented by an evil spirit. And one of his servants lifts up the name of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who has a son named David. Only in this story, he's not a shepherd, but he's talked about as a warrior, a gibor chayil, which is one of my favorite Hebrew phrases because it's just <laughs> so fun to say, a gibor chayil. He becomes Saul's armor bearer, and it says that Saul loved him greatly. So there's a sort of repeat of David's origins, but with some tweaks, some changes, shepherd boy to gibor chayil. Then in 1 Samuel 17, Saul and his army are being oppressed by a Philistine giant of a man named Goliath, and David is introduced in 17 verse 12 as David, the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. All information that we've already been told, twice, but is repeated for a third time here. And moreover, when David finally does come into Saul's presence in this chapter, and when he meets Saul in verse 31, there's no indication that the two have ever met, much less have a prior history that involves armor-bearing and great esteem. Got it. So, hence, this is the origin story of David, uh, sort of, right? Exactly. <laughs> cool. So, what do you want to do with this origin story of David? Well, I want to invite folks to preach a sermon that I'm tentatively titling, God Rejects Us. God Rejects Us? <laughs> okay. Uh, catchy? <clears throat> Weird? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it could work. So it's kind of a joke, um, God rejects us, but at the same time, it's sort of not. 
If you do choose to use this title, of course, some pitfalls right away. First of all, you might have some folks experiencing discomfort over the idea in verse one that God rejects Saul. I mean, Hmm. it's pretty blatant. It's right out there. The, The picture of God that gets painted in much of the United States, especially in mainline denominations, is a God of unconditional love, one who will always support, always be there, and never forsake us. And then we get verses like this one, where it comes straight from God's own lips, I have rejected Saul. And that could cause some theological heartburn for folks. Um, I like that phrase, theological heartburn. And I can definitely see that. Right. Yeah, exactly. So a couple of things there. First of all, it's important to finish the sentence. God says, I have rejected Saul from being king over Israel. There's a sense here of God having chosen someone to lead the Israelites as their king, and then, in light of their regrettable actions, chooses to replace that person. Now, if you're wanting to thread the needle and still keep intact people's image of an unconditionally loving God, then you could say that God just fires Saul from the position, but does (laughs) not take that divine, unconditional love away from him. Got it. Okay. On the other hand... Oh, no. Where are we going now? Well, there is something to be said for allowing people to sort of sit with that discomfort a little bit. I I got the chance to guest lecture in Dr. Aubrey Buster's class a few weeks ago on the topic of anger in the Bible. I wrote my diss on it. It's something I've thought and read and wrote a lot about. So it was a fun conversation to get to be a part of. And these these students asked great questions. One of their questions was, does God get angry at us? Or does God get angry at our actions or our sin? And Hmm. in that, I heard a desire to sort of safeguard or protect ourselves from divine anger, or maybe protect God from being seen as anything other than unconditionally loving. Again, that's sort of threading the needle. And I came out, I think gently, but pretty firmly on the side that, yeah, no, God, God does get angry with us. Because that's what happens in relationships, especially in close relationships when one person disappoints the other. We see examples of it all the time. I do it all the time, both the getting angry and the disappointing. And I do think it's true, especially for God's leaders. When we choose our own self-interest at the expense or even at the pain of others, I do think God gets mad at us. And sometimes I even think God tells us, okay, friend, you've had a good run of it, and now it's time for someone else to have a turn. Huh. I think that's really helpful. Uh, Well, it might cause some more theological heartburn for some folks to feel that God might be angry at them personally. But it does help to realize that, I mean, that's what a real relationship looks like. It includes real anger. It does. And I know it's a controversial sermon angle, but I honestly think... It's one that probably needs to be preached in many churches around the United States because of that suffering servant volunteer mentality where I don't really want to do it, but I know that nobody else will do it if I don't do it, or at least I think that. And so I do it out of duty and obligation and make sure to complain about it as often as possible. (laughs) One of the things that is the worst for a church is when its volunteers get burned out. When folks are asked too often and too much is asked of them and they feel obligated to say yes and resentful of the time they offer. If our time really is meant to be an offering, then it's it's like a gift. One would hope a gift would be given with joy instead of a bitter sense of here, fine, take it, since everybody else is asking for something anyway. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't think I'd really enjoy being a, given a gift if that's the spirit in which it's being given. But somehow, we accept the gift of time from folks in the pew who offer it with just that sort of spirit. What would it be like to preach a sermon that asks folks to really listen to what God is and is not calling them to offer? Are they really being called to lead Vacation Bible School or the Visitation Ministry or the Food Shelf or the March? If their thought is, well, no one else would do it if I didn't, and that thought is accompanied by a sense of resentment rather than purpose or excitement or joy, then maybe God is saying, it's time for you to take a break. This is the fourth Sunday in Lent, I want to recognize, and Lent is both a wonderful season for reflection and at the tail end of the church year when it could be hard if people just up and quit. Um, so perhaps you could couch this in terms of next year. Next year, what is God calling you to offer in this church or in this community in terms of your time? And what might God be calling you to step back from? Rachel, that's a really helpful, I think, um, sermon angle, particularly during the season of Lent, when many people are perhaps looking at their commitments and making a fuller uh, either commitment or stepping back. And that's also an important permission that we want to give folks in our congregations mm -hmm. during Lent. Um, besides the, that particular preaching angle, are there any pitfalls you'd want to lift up? Yeah, I mean, if you preach this sermon, you've got to be willing to accept the fact that some volunteers might submit their resignations. Maybe that won't be such a bad thing, but maybe it will leave you in the lurch. Perhaps end your sermon with an invitation to discern together what God is calling you to do and not do, so that you can listen to God's spirit along with your people. Yeah, that sounds like uh, both a, a fun preaching challenge and also one that might really call for um, pastors to taking their own sort of self-care in this. Yeah. Folks, if you plan to preach a sermon or have any feedback for us at all, please let us know. Reach out to us on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com or on Facebook. If you're looking for a fun Easter host or hostess gift, hey, take a peek at our merchandise or make a donation in someone's name to help keep the podcast going. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found us helpful, leave us a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you find us. Thanks to the inimitable Tim McNinch for his stellar production skills. And until next time, I'm Rosie Candethal. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. <laughs>